Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, after a uh, week of not being here, it seems like it's been forever. I've missed you, all of you, um, and I miss John. And so missed him so much that he actually came here today once again um, out of, the, of his Massachusetts home. So it's great to, you'll see him in real time. And uh, again, uh, thank you for hanging in there through this uh, pandemic. It's been uh, uh, crazy, amazing. I mean, I don't think I've ever lived anything like this, and I'm sure you haven't either. I've spoken to many of you, uh, the pediatricians that are on this call, uh, my colleagues here at Connecticut Children's, and I, I admire what you're doing, how you're doing it, how you're holding on and taking care of the patients and keeping in line with the mission. That is so, so important, and uh, that keeps us focused. So, so thank you for what you're doing. I think Connecticut, John will show you, is in really good shape. The problem is the rest of the country, and, and that's obviously something we have to worry about uh, tremendously. And uh, I believe we have a window uh, the next two, three months for the pediatricians to, uh, for, and for us to get caught up with kids that, uh, that need vaccines, that's gonna be very critical for us. Uh, there are many uh, workways so that you can do this. I've spoken to many of you as well of how you're gonna get up to speed for influenza vaccination, which is the next question. And John, I'm sure at some point we'll touch upon that. Uh, so today we have John, he'll give us an update on what's going on with, uh, with the pandemic, how we're doing here in Connecticut. I know there are a lot of questions for him. And we're really uh, delighted that we have uh, Dr. Richard Antaya, who's a, a wonderful, uh, outstanding pediatric dermatologist. Uh, we, I've shared pa patients with him, very complex diagnosis. He's really one of the premier pediatric dermatologists in the country, and we're really pleased that he was able to uh, join us today. I think he will have uh, uh, an array of pictures, uh, and uh, um, you know, Richard uh, could probably speak for three hours. We're gonna give him about 20, 25 minutes. Um, I think he has like 30 slides, he'll go through them, and then we'll have enough time for questions between John and Richard and, and for you to ask. Uh, you can always send us questions uh, independently and reach, uh, reach out to us. We will get back to you as soon as we can. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dr. Shriver to come up and uh, do his uh, uh, typical presentation. John? Thank you, Juan, and uh, good morning uh, to everyone, Connecticut and uh, other states. It's a pleasure to be here today, and um, I, I think it's a lot going on. I wish I could say there wasn't, but there is, and we're going to talk about some today, and uh, hopefully we'll get to your questions as well. Um, this is the thoughts to start the talk. Uh, clearly, we are in the eye of the hurricane in Connecticut and New England. There is a robust national resurgence in many states, uh, and it is not slowing down. Clearly, um, the data show, if you ignore masks, hand hygiene, and distancing, the mathematics of this virus will yield a rapid increase in new infections, hospitalizations, and then deaths. And there's a lag to the deaths, and we're seeing that catch up now. And it's living proof in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and southern states that they, this is a correct and factual statement. We are clearly in a very positive bubble of low case numbers in New England currently. But the virus does not obey state boundaries, nor does it, is it a member of a political party. The virus is our enemy, um, not each other, and I think the application of science and facts and data will end this pandemic. Now, Connecticut uh, is doing well. We are now the best in the United States in terms of number of new cases. Um, you can see uh, this has fallen off dramatically. Now, there are spikes every couple of days up and down, but in general, uh, it's quite low. And the death rate has declined to almost zero. Um, this is an enormous achievement. If you look at the time frame it took, it wasn't a huge amount of time in the big scheme of things. I guess about six weeks of really hard work and lockdown. 
and then the result is we're able to reopen our economy in a careful and thoughtful way that we hope will be sustained. I think, um, in my opinion, uh, what Connecticut did, Massachusetts is in similar uh, shape now, uh, should be a role model for other states currently that are having an enormous outbreak. Uh, unfortunately, that may not be the case, but this is, I think, a role model of what data-driven uh, science by the Department of Public Health and the governor's office and everyone in the state driving down this epidemic so it's now controlled and we can have a safe reopening. Unfortunately, the rest of the United States is not in that condition. And this is the Connecticut Travel Advisory. I had to change it three times over the week because they added states because it's such a mess. So. Uh, in my opinion, uh, you can travel this summer to New England. There are a lot of wonderful places to see and do, and uh, local is good. Um, I will guarantee you that by tomorrow, there'll be two more red states on this Connecticut travel advisory. And so, you know, we, we uh, really um, have a challenge in the United States currently. I, I think anybody who denies that, um, uh, you know, is incorrect. Uh, we have a challenge. It's going to need to be met. Um, and uh, I think they're good role models, uh, particularly in New England uh, right now, of what uh, behavior and public health uh, changes uh, could yield a good outcome. Now, uh, these are some other states. Just to give you an example, Arizona has now more than 55 cases per 100,000 new cases per residence. Huge burden. It's, uh, I think, one of the largest in the world right now, actually. And uh, this is log phase. I mean, this is uncontrolled. Uh, and uh, what you would need to do, we were like this. If you remember when we were in the midst of our worst day, it was like this. We moved to lockdown. Uh, it was very aggressive. And within weeks, uh, we had recovered. So, you know, is there the political will uh, to do what's necessary in these states to create a better situation? Florida is at 41 cases per 100,000, an uncontrolled epidemic. Um, and remember, the death rate's been pretty flat, but that's because the, this is, takes a few weeks. There's lag time, people are in the ICU, and then gradually that's going to increase. So the math is pretty clear of where this is going. And uh, this is what's happened in the United States because of this. You remember we, we went down in the United States as New York really began to clamp down and get their epidemic under control. They were driving most of the numbers, the, or northeast in New York, some in Massachusetts. And we, as a country, began to go down to a more tolerable level. This is completely reversed, and the rest of the country uh, has a raging epidemic. And we're getting, we have about 50,000 plus cases a day. Uh, Dr. Fauci said we'll be at 100,000 cases a day if we do nothing. I think we're well on the way uh, to have 100,000 new reported cases daily in the United States uh, if we do not have a national strategy. Uh, COVID deaths, this change, I had to change this three times last week. It started off at 159,000, then it was 175,000. Now the USA estimates of deaths is over 200,000. And this is going to grow because we have an uncontrolled epidemic in 36 states. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of, I look at this and I see people. I see elderly, I see young people, I see a child with uh, multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome. I, I see real people uh, who are going to die. And I think um, one of the things that I've been a little distressed about as we've looked at this pandemic is the depersonalization uh, of the casualties from this. Now, um, let's talk about a little bit about testing. Um, this is a great review by British Medical Journal. And they looked at antibody tests to see if you could diagnose acute COVID. Because 
everything's glued up now with testing. We're trying to figure out is other other ways. And it turns out that antibody testing is not a good way to diagnose acute COVID. And we're not surprised. A lot of people haven't made antibodies yet. And you can see on the bar at the bottom, patients with COVID-19, the sensitivity is, you know, 60% for one assay, 80% for the other. There is one that was fairly good. Now, these are antibody tests. But if you don't have COVID and you're recovering, the antibody test is pretty good to document that you had COVID. So again, the niche for antibody testing is going to be not diagnosing acute infection, but seeing whether you were infected in the past. And these data support that use for our antibody tests. Now, the other test that's out there, and there's been some controversy, is the ELISA. Remember I, two weeks ago, it does seem like a long time ago. Two weeks ago, we talked about testing. And I mentioned that PCR is really very sensitive. It's specific, uh, it's the gold standard, and uh, it's what we've been using in the hospital and, and around the country. The enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay tests look at viral antigen. It's not a molecular genetic test. It's much less sensitive, but it's really fast. I mean, you can do it in like 20 minutes. And so in this study, which I think is a very important study, they looked at what's the use of this ELISA. And it turns out if you use it in an outbreak and do it a lot, very frequently, and test a lot of people with this ELISA, you can get the results back really fast and you can act ah, that's a positive person, that's a positive person. You can get the Department of Public Health to act and track it. And it's very useful if you do it frequently during an outbreak. And that might be the niche for the ELISA, particularly when we're running out of the ability to do PCR in some of our epidemic states. Um, and so what the conclusion was that the weekly surveillance testing with this ELISA paired with case isolation can limit an outbreak. And that's, if you don't have access to the PCR, this may be a very useful way of limiting outbreaks. Uh, again, we're going to continue to use PCR in the hospital because we need ultimately, you know, the maximum sensitivity so we don't miss a case. But when you're looking at a public health outbreak, the less sensitive but much faster ELISA could be useful in regional outbreaks. And I'll, have, I'll bet you in the next week or so we're going to start seeing some of this happen in some other states. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the, in, in the public domain about, us. Oh, it's just like influenza. It's just like influenza. Well, it's not. And in this study, uh, there was an analysis comparing what COVID-19 infections were like with patients with influenza. First off, the COVID-19 patients have strokes and vascular disease. And there was a new autopsy study that showed microvascular clots in every person who died of COVID. 100% of them had it. So you can see the odds ratio of having a stroke with COVID versus influenza, it's about five times more likely if you have COVID than influenza. This is a very different disease than flu. Similarly, this is the characteristics of COVID-19 infection patients with compared to influenza patients. And I want to point out some of the differences. The, look, if you look at um, the vascular risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, and um, not hyperlipidemia, but actual coronary artery disease were huge risk factors for COVID. They are not risk factors for severe influenza. So there's some real differences in what sets you up to have severe disease. Interestingly, COPD in either was pretty much similar, either COVID-19 or influenza. Again, focusing on the vascular nature of this disease. And finally, if you look at in hospitalizations, 
if you have COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 infection, you're much more likely to be in the ICU and on mechanical ventilation than influenza. And the lab difference is D-dimers abnormal, SED rate higher than you see in flu, and otherwise uh, uh, pretty similar. So it's a very different disease where we know, uh, we, as we've talked about before, this is targeting the ACE2 receptor. It's a very vascular tropic virus. Influenza is not different diseases. Now, um, we're going to talk about multisystem inflammatory syndrome briefly because, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of cases shortly in the rest of the country. But if you look at us in this area, and by the way, this is a New England Journal paper, our very own Dr. Parker from our ICU was one of the authors on this paper, and Connecticut Children's data are in this analysis. You can see as the COVID epidemic, which is that um, big mountain there, began to decline, about four weeks later, we saw a huge uptick in children who presented with multisystem inflammatory disease. And this is tailored down now. We're, we're, we're seeing very few. But you can imagine as the rest of the country enters an epidemic, we're going to see a lot of children about four weeks from now develop this disease. And in fact, we've had a couple of phone calls from Phoenix uh, recently, and that children's hospital is starting to see uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. So uh, unfortunately, we will have more cases nationally. I think the good news is um, there's been a lot of experience in the East Coast with this, and we know how to handle it, and we need to share those data with our other children's hospital partners in the rest of the country. Now, I'll just talk about what we found on the East Coast with uh, this disease in children. You can see this is a multi-organ disease. I'm having trouble seeing this, so you probably are as well, but you've got cardiovascular, you've got other organs, and this is a multi-organ inflammatory disease, but cardiovascular particularly targeted and more global than you see with Kawasaki, a more global disease of the heart. Okay. Now, I promised you that we would do a deep dive in all the vaccine strategies um, each week. And um, last time, two weeks ago, we did the adenovirus vector vaccine. And remember, there's a human adenovirus vector and a monkey adenovirus vector. Both are in clinical trials. We talked about that. We're going to talk about RNA vaccines for a moment today. Remember, the vaccines in general are targeting the spike protein that binds to the ACE2 receptor in humans. And it's a complex protein. And in general, all of the strategies of vaccines are looking to block this initial binding to the ACE2 receptor by this spike protein. So you want to generate an immune response against this protein. Now, RNA vaccines are a new technology. Well, they're not new. You know, it's been bounced around for about 20 years, but certainly new in humans to prevent infections. And in this strategy, you, you synthesize RNA that would be translated to the spike protein. You inject humans with the RNA, usually in some lipid carrier. So it slips into cells, human cells in your body. And then the human cells make that protein. That RNA goes in there. It's translated to protein. The protein's expressed on the surface of our own cells. And then we make an immune response against it because it's a foreign protein. And so instead of giving antigen, we give the RNA that encodes the antigen, and we make the antigen ourselves and our bodies, and you make an immune response to that. Um, so it's a, it's a novel and very interesting way to create immunity uh, to a protein of a virus. Now, there are a lot of RNA vaccines in clinical trials. The two biggest clinical trials, Moderna, which is in a United States company, 
is in phase two clinical trials. Um, Pfizer and BioNTech, which is a German company, are also in a similar phase. China has one RNA vaccine, and they're probably about five or six well along uh, to, um, in clinical trials. Phase three data I have not seen yet in terms of efficacy, but they're in safety and uh, other clinical trials currently. Now, uh, here's the problem. Uh, if you look at this, this is a brand new non-paper. Uh, phase one, two study described the safety immunogenicity of an RNA vaccine candidate. This is the Pfizer vaccine, and it's not peer-reviewed. It's not published. It just got released as a preprint and uh, released to the press. Uh, I, I, I am uncomfortable with this mode of uh, reviewing data, and I worry, particularly with vaccines, that we need to have tremendous rigor as we determine safety and efficacy with vaccines. And uh, I worry that if we're using the newspapers and preprints to share our data, that we're not do putting our best foot forward. I think Peter Hotez said the same thing a few weeks ago when he was here. So, the RNA vaccine advantages, and there are some advantages. They are much faster produced. You can synthesize them, and they're cheap compared to making a whole antigen-based vaccine where you have to grow the virus and you have to purify it. It has to be safe because it's contagious, et cetera. Now, um, there's also some new versions of RNA vaccines that are self-replicating. They've actually taken a little bit of virus in there so that they replicate themselves and you make more antigen in the cells. There's a little bit of a worry about that in how do you regulate the amount of antigen and is it the same in each person? When we give antigen, you know exactly the dose you're giving. In this model, you don't really know the antigen dose in each person. You're giving the RNA, the RNA is replicating, and your own cells are making the protein. A lot of unknowns there, but there's not infectious particles. It does not require cells to produce. Um, you don't need eggs, for example. You don't need hex cells, which are very controversial now, human embryonic kidney cells. There's a lot of controversy with that. This avoids that. And you can respond to viral mutations very quickly. You can make a new RNA, synthesize new RNA, and you can keep up with any viral mutations. The data are encouraging, but I, I can't really tell because it's all unpublished. And Moderna did the same thing. They had a press release. There was no paper published showing what their data were. So um, there's some concern about rigor in reviewing the human data from RNA vaccines. There are disadvantages. No RNA vaccine has ever been used as a human vaccine to prevent infection. Uh, it just hasn't been done. So we do not know long-term data on safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And so it's an issue. Um, we all need to look at that very carefully uh, and, and think about it. They are rapidly broken down in the body, so they have to be linked to larger molecules, lipids, and other things, and then the self-replication has also fixed that problem. But there's some issues with that. I talked about the self-replication RNA um, and, and the worry that perhaps the antigen dose would be variable, depending on the person. And then in the past, very recently, they needed to be stored cold, but there are some new versions of the RNA that may be stable at room temperature, which would hold an advantage. But right now, they're cold. You have to keep them cold, and so that becomes a, a logistical challenge, particularly in the developing world. So July 10th, 2020, uh, the good, the bad, and unfortunately, there is some ugly today. The good, Connecticut, believe it or not, is now the best in the United States for having the least COVID-19. Um, Massachusetts, New England, close behind. Um, and who would have thought? Uh, a lot of hard work, leadership, 
um, everyone buying in, businesses, everyone buying in, the population. Uh, no variability in what our leadership told us to do. It was very consistent. Uh, people deal with that better. We now have the least COVID in the country, and it's allowing us to reopen carefully and uh, at low risk. And uh, they're talking about school reopening in Connecticut, and it may be reasonable to do that. We'll see what that's like in the next few weeks. So the New England region overall has very low community spread now. We worked hard to get there. Uh, it was data-driven responses to the pandemic that included mass physical distancing and reduction in community and business activities. That behavior works. We are living proof of that. It is my you know, wish that others would look to us for leadership as they address their state challenges with this pandemic. I have yet to see that happen, but it is my dream that we could present our data and other states would follow suit and the pandemic would quickly be under control in those states as well. With vigilance, continued vigilance, testing and precautions, I believe our reopening is likely to be successful in our region. And so <clears throat> we're all living that, we're all careful and we'll see how it goes. I'm sure there'll be little upticks here and there, but if we can maintain our vigilance, our testing, our community um, uh, watching and following up any positive cases, I think we're going to be successful. Unfortunately, large portions of the United States are in log phase epidemic and the hard decisions required to reduce this spread have been delayed. They have not happened yet. We are at significant risk of importing these new cases from other states into Connecticut. We're going to have to be very diligent about asking those coming in from other states with high numbers of community spread uh, that they self-isolate for 14 days. And uh, there is significant worry that there will be importation of new cases from other states. I want to thank everyone for being with me today. It's my pleasure to hand the baton over uh, to a dermatologist to talk about some common pediatric problems, but also how we're going to manage dermatology in future times. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, great update. I really appreciate it. We'll get John back up for questions. And now we have uh, Richard to uh, tell us about uh, dermatology. Just a quick announcement for, that I forgot to mention. Uh, on July 14th, we begin our series called Pediatricians and PJs by Dr. Rob Ketter. He's promised to be in a PJ himself. Um, and it's about management of screen time. Uh, it's from 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. I suspect most of you are not in PJs at that hour, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice way to, uh, to begin the evening perhaps, uh, or maybe you are in PJs, who knows? And uh, so if you please go into the CME website, you can register online, it's $20 per session, and uh, thank you for joining us. So Richard, take it over. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I got kind of two talks to, 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 to deal with today. So I'm going to tell you just a briefly a little bit about Teladerm, um, which uh, the folks in our department at Yale have sort of been leading the, the country, actually, and since we were one of the first uh, uh, states to kind of go into lockdown. Uh, and then the other thing that I decided to use this as the, as the pulpit to talk about eczema. Uh, and uh, interestingly, I think um, it's very, it's lend itself to telederm in these times of COVID. So I, I think this is really um, timely. So next slide. Potential conflict of interest. I just, I deal with a couple of uh, clinical trials. We're not really talking about those today. So we'll move on with that. Okay, telederm in times of COVID. So there's a picture of me. I'm, I'm sitting at my desk in my basement where I spent the last three months um, seeing lots of patients. And uh, we went into essentially our closed our department a little bit earlier than everyone else. We felt we weren't key and essential. 
um, and, and started doing Teladerm uh, through Epic. And what we learned very, very quickly are that these uh, bullets that I want to go through. First of all, if you're going to do, especially dermatology visits, preparation is really the key. Um, we learned very rapidly that our staff really has to to prep the caregivers in advance. They have to be up and, and ready to go with their, with their, um, with their iPads and, and, and their technology and be up on the platform that we need. Um, and for dermatology especially, you, you need digital images. You've all seen the videos now. You can't see anything. Most of the time they're pixelated blurs. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to practice dermatology or see what a skin rash looks like uh, when you're dealing with that. Um, so what we decided to do is uh, over time we, we, we developed these sort of these patterns to do so we now in at least in epic we have colored dots on, on the schedules and we use those to determine where our status of our patients are for those visits so if they're a green dot they're ready to go they have digital images uploaded they know how to run um, my chart and, and the, the video visits um, <clears throat> we all were doing pre charting about uh, you know 12 to 24 hours beforehand to confirm that and also to look at the chart so you weren't making patients wait. Um, and then I actually developed dot phrases just to, to request photos specifically for my patients and that worked fairly well. Uh, when my nurses would send requests, they wouldn't do it. I had a quick dot phrase, it was coming from the physician and they were more likely to send me the photos, um, which was nice. Um, <clears throat> lastly, uh, an AVS, uh, you know, an after visit summary that, that's available in the patient portal. I didn't realize that in, in ours, at least in Epic, um, it was there in perpetuity. And it's wonderful to know that. And our patients really appreciated that. So they don't get that piece of paper and throw it out on the way out. Um, one thing that I uh, learned very quickly in the first week is my back was killing me. So <laughs> I quickly went to Amazon and bought a standing Dex converter so I could go up and down and, and not have a backache at the end of the day. Uh, and then finally, uh, trying to do these video visits on an iPhone or a small um, cell phone is really difficult. An iPad works much better. So next, next uh, so uh, what, what diseases were, were good and which ones are bad for Teladerm? Well, management of, of known inflammatory skin disorders was really easy. Psoriasis, eczema, we'll talk about that in a minute. Common vascular birthmarks, hemangiomas for the most part were pretty easy. Acne, not so bad. Accutane follow-ups, we're probably gonna continue doing it uh, with, uh, with Teladerm going in, into the future. It's really great. It's a, it's a visit where you're really asking the patient, how you doing, how you tolerating medicines and whatnot. It, it lends itself very well. And then certain infections like impetigo. What does not lend itself is to unknown dermatoses. You've all seen these blurry things and you can't figure out what's going on. We've had many misdiagnoses thinking we, we, we thought it was one disease and it was something else when we finally saw them in person. Forget moles, atypical uh, moles, um, very, very difficult to see. Lumps and bumps similarly. And then certain infections that require an in-office visit like warts and mollusca. All right, next. So what are the pearls that I learned from, from common things that you're going to see? Um, so for molluscum, uh, I've always known about these topicals, but we started using them on a, on a larger scale. And that's one's called Zymoderm and the other one's called Molluscum Rx. They're both sort of, sort of botanicals with tea tree oil and some other things. And, and they have some data that show that they're pretty effective. Uh, similarly, for the inflammatory uh, uh, complications of molluscum, using a low potency topical steroid for, in, for molluscum dermatitis, which occurs in about a third of of cases of molluscum, or for those inflammatory ones that we all call infected, but they're not, they're just inflamed, um, just an ultra-potent steroid like clopidosol um, goes a long way in, in getting comfort to these kids. Uh, finally, for, for warts, you know, going back to the old playbook, sal acid and pairing at home certainly works. And then uh, something we've worked on for the last probably almost 10 years now is localized hyperthermia. 
um, for warts, which actually works in a completely different mechanism. Uh, and patients can just soak their, their the extremity with the wart in, in hot water, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. We, we have them go get a candy thermometer at the store, do it for 30 minutes, three days in a row, then repeat it every two weeks. And the data on that is actually pretty good. And there's, there's other uh, studies out there looking at this. Next slide. Okay, so telemedicine lends itself very nicely to atopic dermatitis, as I mentioned. Uh, it's a diagnosis uh, and an exam that's relatively straightforward. Most of us can make that diagnosis without even seeing the patient. Um, the emphasis is on teaching, as we're going to talk about. And even in quarantine, uh, I saw so many children, with uh, infants and children, who had atopic dermatitis who really needed to be seen. They were miserable. They weren't sleeping. Uh, and, and it was really kind of gratifying to sit in my basement office and actually make, it, make a huge difference in these patients. And I, I really want to relay to you what I've learned over the last quarter of a century now uh, of taking care of these kids in a very, very easy manner. Okay, next slide. So treatment approach, this is a, just sort of the armamentarium of one child. Uh, when I first started at Yale, I don't do that anymore. It's, it's a lot simpler. So let, let's move on to the next slide. So there's really five E's um, to a, a really excellent eczema experience. Um, it's education, expectations and endpoints, encouragement, enough medication, enough medication, enough medication, I can't say that enough, um, an early return visit. And uh, those things are, are critical. So we all know that education's really related to the, to, to the success of any, any illness, but especially when you're dealing with something like atopic dermatitis, uh, it really goes a long way. The expectations, and a lot of these are to deal with topical steroid phobia. It's a real deal. It's everywhere around the world. There's been many studies looking at this. We all suffer from it. Um, I think I don't suffer from it anymore. I think I got over mine. Um, and I hope to help you get over yours too. Um, and, and through that, endpoints of, of therapy, dividing therapy into clearance and maintenance phases, encouraging them, enough medication, and early, early return visit. Why don't you go to the next slide? Okay, so education. I, I like to really kind of keep it simple. My spiel is this one, but you can use whatever you want. I like to tell parents what it is and what it's not. Um, there is no cure for atopic dermatitis. It's not a single allergy. They all want to believe it, but it can be controlled, and it has to be controlled to get anywhere in, in it. Um, I don't use terms like allokinesis, but I do tell patients and parents that, that people with atopic dermatitis um, sort of get itchy from things that other people would not get itchy to, like heat and perspiration, wool, stress, certain foods. Uh, and then the antidote for parental guilt is that in one study, they showed the common cold. And about 36% uh, was, was a trigger for itching and a flare of atopic dermatitis. Next slide. So expectations. So uh, I think coming up with an endpoint uh, is, is very helpful for parents who are very nervous about using medicines. Oftentimes, if you give them a medicine and you say, go use this for a, until they're better and then, then stop, there's, there, they may not get better. They may stop prematurely. And that's what I've seen over time. So um, I, I basically tell them there's a clearance phase where you have to use anti-inflammatory medicine. It won't work any other way. You can't use moisturizers. And then there's a maintenance phase where you are using moisturizer and you're trying to avoid uh, the triggers. And then the rationale for the proposed therapy, and I'm gonna show you my, my campfire analogy, which you're welcome to use. And then encouragement. Obviously, you, you really need to be a cheerleader for these parents. You need to tell them that they're, if they're weak in the knees and they're afraid to be using these, the steroids, call me and we'll get you through it. And you just kind of pledge that you will not stop until uh, they get uh, clear. Okay, next. 
soaps, and we talk about this all the time, essentially tell them, make sure that the child doesn't use a, a, a soap that makes you feel squeaky clean. Those are the soaps that pull all the oils off the skin. I don't need to list them. Um, one thing that I learned um, years ago is that when they're flaring, avoid all soaps, even the gentle ones. Soap is an irritant. If you're in the lab and you're doing studies on stratum corneum, you want to irritate the, the stratum corneum in the skin, you add soap. SLS is used commonly. So it's one of those things that we kind of just avoid uh, when anybody is flaring, they don't use soap. Next. Okay, this is a, a lovely picture from many years ago. This kid came to, to dermatology clinic down at Yale. Um, he, he, it was a winter time. You can kind of see the two legs don't look alike. The first, you can click the first one here, the, on the, or the right leg. He, yeah, there, right leg, click again. It looks, um, it's not so good on the left leg, obviously. Click again. This one's nice and smooth. The other one, click again, is not nice. It's rough and yucky. Uh, and when we t asked him, I said, well, what happened here? How come your legs look so different? And he said, well, they were rushed getting out the door. And so the right leg got the moisturizer and the left leg didn't. So this is just, you know, he's my poster boy for, for moisturization. Next slide. So moisturizers, we all know, they're the cornerstone of, of treatment. The barrier doesn't work well, so you have to help it out. So immediately after bathing, that helps decrease the dryness, uh, and then multiple times a day. And one quick thing that I learned about infants, particularly those with uh, periorificial and, uh, and, uh, and facial uh, eczema, is you put the moisturizer on before they sleep, before they nap, every, before every meal. Um, sometimes seven times a day. My favorite moisturizer is Theraplex emollient. Anybody sent me patients, you know that that's one I love. It's very thick. It's like turtle wax for your kid and it works great. So, okay, next. Uh, other things, you know, anything that comes in contact with the, with the body and the skin can be an irritant. So laundry detergents, about 2% of laundry detergents stay in the fabric. So you want the mildest one around. I like hypoallergenic detergents. Um, and then avoiding dryer sheets and fabric softeners are the things that, that can, can make it you know, a problem as well. All right, uh, next slide. Okay, on to medical treatment. So once you've gone through all that, now we got to treat the patient. So um, most babies, and I, I kind of joke with my, my staff about this, I, I kind of have it like a, it's, it's a Cadeli. It's a number one, is, is hydrocortisone two and a half percent, and number two is triamcinolone, hold the, hold the soap. That's basically what we do. Um, and I, I've kind of gotten rid of most of the other ones because hydrocortisone two and a half percent is my main, is my mainstay for almost everybody less than a year, um, and definitely a simple way to do this. Um, once you're older, it usually takes a little bit more to get them under control. We're talking about for more moderate to severe cases. Triamcinolone actually is, is, a, is a really good one, and and the reason we like those two is I'll show you in a minute. Next slide. So the standard regimen for these is twice a day um, for two to four weeks, especially that first course. You don't need to necessarily do two to four weeks every single time they flare. But the first time you're really taking care of these patients, you need to do a couple of things. You need to get them under control. And you need to get the family on board that this will work um, and that there is an endpoint and they're going to stop using the steroids because everybody's afraid that there's something horrible going to happen with steroids. And we're going to address that in a, in a little bit. Um, and then you use it as needed. Um, for, the, for, the, for the flares, and then you get off when you don't need it. Um, a, a really interesting strategy has come forth over the last maybe 10 years is that using uh, maintenance um, steroids. So if you clear somebody, but they flare within that first week, you may want to start uh, a strategy where you use the topical steroid one application on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 
uh, that keeps them under control. And, and many studies have shown this with both steroids and with uh, topical tacrolimus, that it decreases the frequency of flares by about four times. So if somebody flares once a week, when you get on this kind of a maintenance uh, regimen, you'll flare maybe once a month and that, that can make a, a huge difference in these patients. And there's really good safety data on that. So if you uh, use it, you, you don't see skin thinning uh, if you're only applying it three applications per week. Next slide. Enough medication. So um, we talked about frequency and duration. Um, duration, I put two plus, plus or minus two weeks. Now FDA, pretty much all the, the um, uh, <clears throat> the, um, the, the package inserts will say two weeks because that's why they studied it. But there are patients who have thick lichenified plaques. Two weeks is not going to work. You need to use sometimes three, four, sometimes even longer to get through those, those areas. And that's okay. <clears throat> what is the amount? And this is really where I, I see a lot of uh, problems. So the amount that we use um, is, is dependent on the body service uh, available. So um, just to break it down, if you look at an adult palm, that's about a half a gram of medicine. A baby who's three to six months of age, it's about four or five grams. A, a school-age kid, six to 10, it's 10 grams. And an adult, it's around 20 to 30 grams. And that's what you need. And that's what it's based, uh, the, the medication's based on. The problem is these medicines are, are, are dispensed in certain quantities, 15 to 100 grams in, in one pound jars. 15 grams is about my pinky finger. Uh, if you have somebody with total body area, you know, 15 grams doesn't go far. First thing I look at when I get a consult um, is to go now go into Epic and, and look at what was ordered. And oftentimes they'll see 15, 30 grams. I say, how long you had that tube? Oh, we've had it for about two months now. All right, so next slide. So the estimate here for quick memorization, this is some, hopefully the take home message is for a five month old, you need five grams. This is for a total body surface area. A 10 year old, 10 grams, an adult, 20 year old, 20 grams. So five, 10 and 20, that's all you need to do. If you do the math, five month old with a total body surface area, maybe kind of skip, skip the diaper because that's usually clear. So five grams twice a day, that's 10 grams a day for two weeks, that's 140 grams. Already you need more than any tube uh, offers you. Seven-year-old, same thing. He needs double that amount. Next slide. And so the only two topical steroids that are really sold in one-pound jars are hydrocortisone and triamcinolone. So that becomes my number one and my number two. Uh, you just look at a 30-gram tube, you need 16 of those to get the, the amount of medicine in, in one tub of hydrocortisone. Um, so you may have some leftover, and that's okay. The way I tell parents to do this is I say, well, I'm going to give you a pound of, of, of hydrocortisone. Um, you know, I figure out the amount based on the, the weight of the size of the child, or the age. And then I tell them, you know, at, you know, by halfway through, you should be, you know, a third of the way done with the tub or maybe a fourth of the way done with the tub. I don't tell them to put a certain amount on per time. Nobody's going to do it. And it just, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So I tell them by the end of two weeks, you should be halfway done with the tub. If you're, if you're done with the entire tub, that's okay. Um, I try to relieve any fear about hydrocortisone and you should as well. I, I, I joke to them. I say the only way you can hurt yourself with hydrocortisone is if some gets on the floor, you slip and hit your head on the counter. That's about it. Okay, next slide. All right, here's my campfire analogy. I am not digitally uh, uh, blessed at all. So this, this took me about three hours to do. So I tell the parents that your eczema is like a campfire burning on the skin. Um, when you take small amounts of, uh, of steroid, it's like taking a cup, click here, and pouring it on the fire, click. This is much better when I do it myself, obviously. Um, click, <laughs> and here's the water, click, click. 
<laughs> Click. All right. And now uh, what we're going to do is we are going to drops the fire down, but it doesn't really put the flames out. And the goal is to put the flames out. As long as nails are going to skin, they're going to perpetuate the, the inflammation of the, of the skin. So now we're going to take a bucket. Go ahead and click, click, click it through. Um, there it is. There's my water. And now look at that. The flames are nearly out. Maybe there's a couple of embers left over, but, um, but you're welcome to use that analogy. Um, you really have to get the fire out. Um, if you don't, they will continue to itch. They will continue to generate more inflammation and, and, and nothing will work. So it, the end point is everything here. Next slide. Okay. Um, so this was a girl, a, a perfect example, a four-year-old who had, who had had severe eczema her entire life. She actually was treated with medium strength topical steroids, topical calcineurin inhibitors. I think it was uh, tacrolimus at the time, but it never cleared. Um, we saw her, gave her some triamcinolone ointment twice a day for two weeks. At that time I was using Vaseline. Um, I don't do that anymore, actually, and that's a, it's a good point to make that during that first phase that we're treating patients and when we do treat patients when they're flaring, I don't add a moisturizer um, to the regimen. It's, it's just the topical steroid, and that way they use enough topical steroid to make it work um, instead of trying to dilute it up and do moisturizers. Okay, so this is her at baseline. Next. Uh, this is her at end of two weeks. Um, essentially clear. She was finally sleeping through the night and, and it really did alter her. We, you know, she didn't, we didn't cure her, but uh, we got her under the best control she'd ever been with just two weeks of giving her enough uh, triamcinolone. Next slide. And this little guy, similarly, you see his little, um, his, his bib, it says chicks dig me. Actually, they, they weren't digging him. He had problems because his face was a mess. His eczema was, was bothering him. He wasn't sleeping well. So we did hydrocortisone two and a half percent. That's a number one, hold the soap. Okay, next slide. Here he is at, at two weeks. He's definitely improving. And then we just kept him on uh, moisturizers as Vaseline at that time. And then you can click one more time. And here he is at six weeks, look at him, he's happy. Uh, the chicks were digging him. He had, he got, he had to lose the prop there because he was doing so well. Okay, so that was in. Next slide. So uh, I mentioned this thing about steroid phobia, and it, it's become a, a very big concept in dermatology recently because we have a really good medicines at our disposal, but we don't use them appropriately. Um, and I, I, we had done a study actually looking uh, at steroid phobia. Uh, with one of my medical students published that just to show that, that, that the steroid phobia is everywhere. It's in every country that we could see. Um, and that the, the, the groups of people that are actually perpetuating steroid phobia, not only online, but pharmacists, physicians, we're, we're all to blame. You know, we tell parents, you know, put it on sparingly. Don't, don't overdo it. You may get some side effects. And, and, and it's really fun because I always ask the parents, I say, what are you afraid of? Well, most of them aren't, I don't know what they're afraid of. I just know it's bad. It's got to be something bad. Is he going to grow an extra arm? No, I don't think so. Um, so this group actually did what I wanted to do. They actually got a group of uh, really seasoned uh, pediatric dermatologists. They went through the, uh, the published evidence about adverse events um, associated with topical steroids, in, specifically in pediatric eczema. This is from the Australasian group. And they looked at 105 articles. They had 430 person years of clinical experience. So these are a bunch of gray-haired PD derms who have been, been in the trenches for a long time. And, um, and their results were, were, were really striking. Uh, next slide. 
And so there were several key points and way too many that I, that I can use for now. I can't, I can't tell you them all, but these are the ones that I think are most important. And I'm gonna just read them through you because they're, they're great. So the recommendation used sparingly in, is nonsensical and has no value. There's nothing good about using these small. It's like using a little bit of amoxicillin for an ear infection, it's not gonna work. Um, what is commonly referred to as skin thinning by parents and non-dermatologists is usually a misinterpretation uh, of active eczema. Seen that. When uh, steroids are used for eczema in children are stopped on resolution of the dermatosis, irreversible skin thinning does not occur. Next slide. Okay. Physiologic HPA suppression can occur with very widespread and prolonged and, or occlusive use of potent or super potent topical steroids, but this recovers quickly. And I can tell you that I have, I have not seen this uh, in my patients. I've seen it when patients with ichthyosis who get misdiagnosed as have eczema, they do absorb it much more readily than patients who um, have atopic derm. Clinically significant adrenal suppression is very rare in the treatment of pediatric eczema with steroids, and there's no evidence that applying topical steroids on excoriated or infected eczema is deleterious. So patients and parents will say, well, I didn't put it on there because you had open skin. Well, those are the patients who actually really need it. Next slide. Okay. Um, TCSs or topical steroids should be the first line treatment for eczema, regardless of whether the skin is excoriated or infected. As we said, you should uh, obviously clear uh, and treat any other infection. And um, allergy is quite rare, but you should think about it uh, in ch children who are having a poor response to appropriate steroids. And bone marrow dentis is, is not an issue. Okay, next slide. And finally, prolonged use of steroids in the periorbital area has rarely been associated with cataract or glaucoma. Um, the tendency um, for periorificial dermatitis is there. So patients who develop this acneiform uh, uh, rash. That was probably the most common side effect we see with topical steroids. And the red face, it's all over the internet. It's not really associated with children. Keep it in mind for teenagers who continue to get worse um, despite increasing steroid potency. Next slide. Routine use of, of steroids in children with eczema should not cause telangiectasia. And finally, the big daddy, hypopigmentation seen with steroids um, as their eczema clears is caused by the eczema just like in pityriasis alba, not in the treatment. I don't think I've ever really seen good, high, really true hypopigmentation from steroids. Next slide. Uh, cal calcineurin inhibitors, uh, we use them, protopic elidil um, and, and chrysoboral. Next slide. Um, when do we use those? We use them when we're worried about steroids not working, the, the location's too risky, intertriginous areas, eyelids, when the steroids are ineffective. Um, still talk about the FDA boxed warning, but they don't cause cancer. There's two huge um, international studies that have refuted that um, once and for all. Um, and hands and feet. Sometimes the PDE4 inhibitor, uh, 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 inhibitors like chrysoboral actually work real well on hands and feet. So I like it for there. Last, last slide. Um, so just to re recap, education, expectations to minimize this TCS phobia, endpoints, you know, give them a, a clearance phase and a maintenance phase enough medication, you can't say that enough, and then really see them back at that first time in two weeks. Last slide. So thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it. John, do you want to come up? Great. Thank you, Richard. Uh, uh, that was fantastic. Uh, I, even for an infectious disease guy, I think I can actually do this. So I appreciate it. Uh, we have uh, 15, about 14, 15 minutes for questions, and we have a number of questions. And so we'll uh, we'll go ahead and get started. The first one uh, is for Dr. Schreiber. What two states does John think will be added soon to the travel advisory? 
Um, <clears throat> I guess the question will be what states won't be added to the travel <laughs> advisory, but uh, I think um, you have some Midwest states that are starting to creep up. You know, the whole South um, is a problem right now. Florida, Texas, Arizona are the big three, and California, unfortunately. Yes. So it looks like there's a, a big hunk of the country. Some of the far west states, um, and I, I don't have the map in front of me, uh, I think uh, one of the Dakotas, Nebraska, there are a few out there that seem to be uh, okay right now. So there are going to be more states in the Midwest added shortly, in my opinion. Thank you. Uh, uh, Richard uh, uh, from uh, Eileen Lawrence, uh, thank you for a great talk. What about bleach baths? Bleach baths are great. Um, <laughs> um, still use a lot of them. Um, so uh, they, interestingly, they did some studies out, out in California and showed that there's actually quite a bit of anti-inflammatory activity with sodium hypochlorite. So it may not be just that we're dropping staph aureus on the skin and, and these kids. And, and in fact, some of the studies didn't show that the, that the staph aureus counts dropped that much with bleach baths, but they do, they do help. Um, a recent study looked at um, the frequency that we, we do them. And a lot of times we've been telling patients to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or three times a week. Um, this, stud this recent study showed that doing it daily actually was more effective. So when we've kind of started moving our patients in that direction and having them do the bleach baths, um, you, know, uh, you know, every day. Um, it's important to do the right concentration. Um, it's, it's a half a cup per a standard bathtub size that's about, about uh, four to six inches deep. Um, and that, that's what you're looking for. Essentially, it's two teaspoons or 10 mLs per gallon of water is what you're looking at. And that's a standard um, Clorox or sodium hypochlorite. Um, also, I should mention, there is a product out that's a cleanser that has, um, that has the same concentration of bleach. It's called CLN Wash. And um, it, it, we use a lot of it because teenagers don't want to take a, a bleach bath and a lot of them really need um, that, that help. So um, it's something they can get online capital C, capital L, small n, um, and it works pretty well. It's a little pricey. I'm not uh, thrilled about that part of it, but it, it does work, and particularly of patients who can't uh, get in the tub. Great. Thank you. Um, I add to that that the bleach bath is good for eczema, not good for COVID. I don't want, any, uh, any, I don't want anything to get out there that we're saying bleach baths are good for COVID-19. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification, John. Don't drink it. Um, from Matthew Carrera to you, John, I think uh, I know your answer to this, but patients who are traveling to their vacation homes in South Carolina are asking for a COVID test and letter to go back to camp, work, et cetera, to avoid the Connecticut 14-day quarantine. I don't want to do this. Your advice? Well, first off, I think if you are traveling to one of the areas where there's a lot of community spread, you need to bring your Connecticut caution with you. So wear masks, uh, don't socially mix in large groups. Uh, wash your hands, do all the things that you've done in Connecticut to prevent the community spread when you're traveling to a state that has a lot of community spread. I think that's very important. I do think it would be best people returning from those states to self-quarantine. That will be the safest way. But if you're an essential worker and you do need to go back to work, uh, there's a strategy where you could get a couple of tests, probably not just one test, probably a couple of tests over seven days, and it's most likely you would present clinically within that time period, and probably it's okay after that. So self-quarantine, uh, following the DPH and Connecticut state recommendations would be my first choice. Great, thank you. Um, Richard, a question for you about uh, cream versus ointment. Uh, which one do you recommend? That's a great question. Um, 
for, for infants, it's always ointment. You know, ointments are better for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're more moisturizing uh, than your standard cream, uh, particularly when we're dealing with the, with the um, you know, with the topical steroids. But uh, as you get older and the kids get about eight or nine, just like they get all sorts of opinions, um, if they don't like an ointment, they're not going to put it on. So, so that's when we have that discussion about, you know, you know, obviously ointments would be better, but if they're not going to put it on and they're going to fight their parents uh, constantly, then we move on to the creams because some kids just like creams better. But there are still other children who like ointments better. Ointments have a lot less uh, uh, products in them to sort of decrease, you know, there's no emulsifiers like there are in creams um, to, to, um, to, to um, kind of muddy the waters. Great, thank you. Uh, John uh, from Corbinian, uh, who's uh, an incoming UConn medical student, former member of the GSD team. Uh, thank you in advance for answering my question. I recently saw an ad on TV for cloth masks, and they referenced that the WHO guidelines mentioned a three-layer recommendation in cloth masks. I was under the impression that a two-layer mask was sufficient. Would you mind uh, making a comment about the efficiency of a two versus three-layer mask? I doubt there's actual data that have compared those two uh, masks, so I, I probably don't have any data I can give you. I will say that in general, um, a good cloth mask or a surgical mask, the data do suggest a 60 to 75 percent reduction in transmission. So I, I can't differentiate for you between two layers and three layers. Probably three layers will be better uh, if, there, if there's more depth to it and more cross fibers. Uh, so it makes sense, common sense, that it would be a better mask, but I don't think there are any data comparing two layers versus three layers. Thank you. Um, for Dr. Antea, uh, speak briefly about Dupixent, uh, uh, and, and, and this is for Mark Ramirez's great presentation as well. Uh, Dupixent, yeah. So to Dupilumab is, is wonderful. I, th I thought to put some slides in it, but I didn't have any time. Um, so Dupilumab is, a, is the first biologic for atopic dermatitis. It came out a couple, a couple years ago and is now FDA approved down to age six, which is absolutely wonderful. It blocks IL-4 and IL-13. These are the two TH2 pro-inflammatory um, cytokines uh, and it's dynamite. It's for atopic dermatitis. It's FDA approved for asthma uh, and for allergic rhinitis with polyps. Um, it has absolutely revolutionized our our practice in patients with very severe disease, where previously we would have treated these children with cyclosporin or Celsept or methotrexate. Um, now we're, 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 we still use those drugs when we need them, but, um, but dupilumab is wonderful. It, um, it uh, does not require any laboratory monitoring. It's an antibody, it's humanized antibody. So, um, and, and it's wildly effective um, in, in most children. Biggest side effect is conjunctivitis. If they have previous conjunctivitis, they, they may have a, a problem with that. Um, we still don't understand that. Uh, but overall, very well tolerated. Uh, it's a shot, you know, every two weeks, um, but, it, but it works very well. Also from Dr. Ramirez, this is for John. Uh, how are we doing at Connecticut Children's with the MISI admissions? Are they going down? Oh, they've definitely gone down. Uh, we've had, we had a burst, and it was much like that graph I showed you where about four weeks after the biggest outbreak in Connecticut, we had a burst of kids come in. Now it's a trickle. Uh, I think we have one or two a week who seem to be suspect for it, but it's very low numbers right now. Great. From Larry Scherzer, one of our pediatricians, uh, hypopigmentation after eczema treatment is a big problem in dark-skinned patients. Any hints on how to minimize the sequela? Um, no, you just have to control it. I mean, that's it. I mean, bottom line is you, you got to get the eczema under control. And it's very similar to P. alba. So P. alba is something that we see a lot during the summer months. Children get, get, get darker because they're out in the sun. And the areas where they have very mild eczema um, don't, 
you know, don't pigment right. So, so my strategy for that is the last two weeks of school, they start using their topical steroid on the areas where that are prone. Um, so prevention is everything. Once you get rid of those pigment cells, it takes a while for them to come back. It's never permanent. So you, know, you have to just, you know, make sure that they realize it's not vitiligo but it can take weeks to even months for the pigmentation to come back. So it's something that we grapple with all the time, but it's prevention, not, not treatment. Thank you. Uh, uh, John, any, any data from Europe or South America about influenza co-infections? I'm not aware of data yet. And influenza activity has been low. Unfortunately, there does appear to be a new strain of influenza in China currently creating a small outbreak. And there's real worry uh, that there could be a new influenza circulating in the world this fall. So we'll need to be very vigilant. I'm not aware of active data right now, though, showing co-infection. It is something we're going to watch carefully as we get into the uh, fall months uh, at Connecticut Children's. Great. Uh, Richard, can, can you elaborate on stress-induced eczema and what suggestions you may have for parents to help toddlers stop scratching? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, you, almost you can't do anything, um, especially with toddlers. You really can't do anything. There, there was a couple of slides I had to hack out, but uh, in older children, um, there actually are something called habit reversal techniques that uh, we've used for other things like nail biting and hair pulling uh, that work very well for patients with atopic dermatitis. And it's you know basically finding out when. What, what things bring it on that they're scratching and then identify and then get in, you know, some sort of alternative response, you know, like padding or squeezing. And, and that's been shown at least in adults uh, on several studies to be helpful in decreasing um, uh, flares of atopic dermatitis, but you can't stop those kids from scratching, you know, as much as parents want to do it, you can put mittens on children, you can make sure their nails are short. But that itch is, 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 is dramatic and, and they, that desire to scratch is huge. You have to control the disease. I'll say it again. You have to put on topical steroids. If they're scratching, they probably have enough inflammation in their skin that's causing it. So sometimes I'll have patients come in with, with just scratching. And it's like, well, I don't see active dermatitis. Well, we'll treat them just like we'll treat a, a patient who has full-on eczema. They come back two weeks later and, and their, their itching has improved, which, which tells us there was some inflammation in the skin. Great, thank you. Um, from uh, Jerry Lehman, thinking about ultraviolet lights for our office in, uh, in a sick room area, what is your advice? Where would you put them if okay, John? It's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that. I think you'd want to make sure um, that the air uh, is exposed and any surfaces uh, that the patient uh, touched or might have coughed on. So you have to look at your surfaces and look at your room and determine where the best location is based on that. Um, you know, now that we know there's probably in, in a high risk procedure, you'd probably want to wait 15 minutes uh, as well and then clean the room. So it sort of depends on what you're doing in that room. But that would be my answer for that right now. It's a good question. Uh, from Mary Simon uh, uh, for Richard, I had a patient transferred to my practice at age two with severe telangiectasia on his cheeks after using 1% hydrocortisone over the counter for over a year as recommended by his previous pediatrician. Uh, any, any comments on that? Is that uh, associated? Is it just incidental or what do you think? Well, I, I don't think we really know. We see those patients once in a while. There's something called benign hereditary telangiectasia, which it doesn't seem to be very hereditary, but there are children who don't use steroids at all and have these little fine linear telangiectasia on their cheeks. So I, I do wonder if sometimes those patients, you know, who have used topical steroids, you know, are, are developing it. Even if it was from the topical steroids. If, he, if they needed it, 
that's fine. Uh, those those telangiectasias are easily treated with a little laser if, if that's what it needs. Um, I have yet to see that with any of my patients. Of course, I don't keep them on it for an entire year. Um, you know, you have to pulse it you know, on and off. So um, I don't know. The answer is I don't think anybody could tell you if there's a, a direct con connection. From the studies, they didn't, they didn't show that, at least, which is good. For you as well, is, uh, is, is uh, dermatitis, uh, eczema more common in certain populations? No, it kind of knows everybody. Uh, uh, so we see it in, in all walks of life, every, every racial um, background, it, 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 it affects everyone. And, and there's a, the severity is similar to, uh, you know, a huge range across uh, uh, racial uh, groups. Also for you, uh, in, in the COVID era, have you, have you seen any specific patterns associated with COVID-19 in, in your pediatric practice? And, well, we saw the COVID toes a lot. Uh, you know, the end of April and May was COVID toe month, and <laughs> we saw a lot of those. Um, and now we haven't seen any uh, in the last month or so. So I think it, it was a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, but as far as that, no, uh, other than just sort of complicating everybody's, uh, everybody's uh, lifestyle. That's about it. Very good. And, and the last question for John is, how long should children stay out of school if they're ill? in this coming, you know, so they have a fever and how long should they stay out of school? Well, that's a good question. And I think um, the question is going to be, uh, do they have COVID or do they have a run of the mill pediatric illness? I think it, we were going to want to differentiate that probably within the school somehow, probably by testing. If the test is negative and it's a run of a mill pediatric illness, I'd follow our normal rules. And usually that was 48 hours after there's no fever, uh, they go back to school. With COVID, it's gonna be a little different because we know that there's excretion of virus. Um, and so then you're talking about uh, probably seven days or 10 days post. So I think we're gonna to need to try to differentiate uh, kids who are ill this particular season. Is it COVID and is it not, or non-COVID? And there'll probably be different rules based on that. Sounds like uh, testing is gonna be critical. I think so. To safely open our schools, uh, having a, a good solid testing that comes back quickly will be extremely helpful and probably prevent uh, big outbreaks within our schools. So the answer, Juan, I believe yes. Great, thank you. So thank you everyone for joining us this morning. Um, I, I, I hope this was useful to you. Let us know, send us some feedback. Don't forget the uh, 714 pediatricians and PJs with Dr. Rob Ketter, 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Richard, for outstanding presentations. And we will see you again uh, a week from today the next uh, session and I think we're going to continue this through the month of July we'll have to decide if August we take a break or not uh, but uh, other than that thank you to have a great weekend and keep safe be good bye-bye thanks everyone